Okay, that's enough. People leaving. <laughs> Keep at least a couple people here. Or else I'm going to be lonely. Uh, I want to add a word to what Pastor Steve said about the Arch meeting. I don't know what Pastor Tim shared and said this morning, but if you have in any part participated in helping the Arch Pastors Fellowship become a reality, uh, I want to convey my thank you and the thank you of uh, 200 plus other people for all the work that you put into that. Um, I, I over and over again, because a lot of the men know I'm here at Grace Church, I'm in there, they come to me and they say, thank you, thank you so much for all you're doing to make this a reality. And I, I say to them, uh, frankly, I do almost nothing to make this a reality, but I will pass that on because we do have a wonderful team of people <clears throat> that love the Lord and, <clears throat> and they do all the administration and the emails and the figuring out of the transportation and the hotels and I mean, it, it's incredible. It really is. The food, the logistics of, of not just hosting a meeting here. Well, let's just make it fun and travel 1,200 miles and host a meeting somewhere else in a facility we've never used before. And um, I just really appreciate all that you do. Uh, only in eternity will we know the impact and the fruit uh, that comes out of those meetings. I really believe that. We find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke on these Sunday nights. Let me apologize ahead of time for not having a tie on. Yeah. In my absent-mindedness, I buttoned my shirt collar, put on my scarf and my coat, and walked out the door. So when I took my scarf off, I was quite surprised. Like, Whoa! <laughs> I should put my scarf back on, I guess. Uh, but I did remember my notes in my Bible, so I think we're okay. Luke chapter 5 is our text tonight. Uh, a couple of sections of Luke chapter 5. We're not purposely trying to chop things up, but sort of following a little bit of a thematic uh, outline as we develop the book of Luke. We're going to look at two sections of chapter 5 and one section of chapter 6 together tonight because they all feature discipleship and the call of the disciples. So Luke 5, I'm going to read all three passages together, and then we'll come back and look at them. Luke 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. We call it uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias. It's three different names and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. Move that down a little bit. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Down to verse 27. <clears throat> After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in the, his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And one more section in chapter 6 and verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and chose twelve of them whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so we have three different sections here that Luke records with reference to the early calling of the disciples. And there's some discussion about uh, the chronology of this. This is probably, for some of these men, not the first time that Christ has invited them to follow him. There appear to be a couple of different occasions, the first of which was probably in the book of John, and we're not going to turn there, but when you read the first chapters of John, uh, Jesus there first met Andrew, and Andrew went and brought Simon, and uh, he invited them to follow him. They had been followers of John the Baptist, and he was inviting them to follow him, about whom John preached. And I think what happened is that that first meeting is they became followers of Jesus instead of followers of John, or in a sense, uh, moved with John's loyalty over to Jesus. And then in the second calling, 
at their place of business on the Sea of Galilee, especially with these fishermen. Jesus then comes to them at a later time and says, all right, now it's time, men. Now it's time to follow me. And then begins their, uh, their, their more complete relationship of following. But we remember that they, they still went back to the nets later on. And, and some people criticize them for that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that we should do that because Jesus said, I'm going to meet you guys back in Galilee. Well, if they're going to go back to Galilee, what are they going to do? They're going to go back to their boats and, uh, and, and, and work in the boats. And that's where Jesus met them again later. And, and we read that in the Gospel of John as well. But this then is the early ministry of Christ. As Luke develops the Gospel, he has just begun in the previous chapter telling us about the public ministry of Christ. And it was not just enough that Jesus would go around and preach and then someday leave and be gone. It was important for him that he train men who would eventually be ready to carry on the work that he had started. Now, I don't know about you, but we have some helpers around our house. We have little two-year-old, three-month Mila, and some days we have three-year-old Hazel, and they love to help. They love to get the broom out of the closet and push that dirt around, and they can push that dirt into every corner you can't reach. <laughs> and, and, and Mila loves to get up and wash dishes on a stool, and make, when she's babysitting for her, I'll come in sometimes, and Mila will be standing there at the kitchen sink, and and, and she hasn't gotten one thing clean, but man, is she having fun. And she's soaking wet, and there's water on the counter, and there's water on the floor. Lots of help, right? Amen. Now look at yourself. You're one of God's helpers. How would you like to be the creator? Come down here and have to pick 12 guys to leave everything with. It's a wonder we don't have a record somewhere of Jesus looking up at the Father and saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> really, when you stop and think about it, what an amazing time in history when Jesus would take men and women who followed faithfully to be with him and, and to grow and learn and, and, and be ready to hand it all over to them and leave. That's amazing. We have a, a lot of pictures of this in our culture. When people get a job, quite often they have on-the-job training. They learn skills they never had before, and sometimes they learn them very quickly, and the other person's able to walk away and let them do the job. That, that two months before, they had no idea how to do it. Our military runs this way. Do you know, you know how young these military people are? I mean, you, you see these, there, there's some guy in charge of a submarine. He's 30, 29 years old. He got a nuclear submarine for a toy. Not that it's a toy. But you know what I mean? They, they've been trained so quickly and so intensively that in a very short period of time, they're able to handle advanced weapon systems, deal strategically with military situations, fly these 
incredibly complicated airplanes and land them on a postage stamp out in the middle of the ocean. Intensive training over a short period of time actually can accomplish a lot. And that's what Jesus Christ was doing. So he's going around in his early ministry and he's finding followers. He's finding out who his father's giving him. And he's going to take them into intensive training to be with him. Don't you love the way Jesus so often just used the natural situations of life? He saw a water, a woman drawing water at the well. He sees a tax collector at a table. He sees a fisherman at his nets. And he just uses that opportunity in that situation to make a spiritual application and invitation to them. Many of you have seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee. Here it's called Lake Gennesaret, which is a one translation or one transliteration of the Hebrew Lake Kinneret, which means a heart, a harp, harp-shaped lake, shaped like a harp. When you stand on top of the hills and look down at the lake, it, it has the shape of a harp. So it's Harp Lake, essentially, in Hebrew. And it's not real big. It's, I think it's 13 miles long and six or seven miles wide at the widest point. Steep hills on both sides. By the way, the Sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level. Okay, Lake Erie is, what, 600 feet above sea level? So another 1,300 feet below, farther down in the earth. And because of that unique geography is these tremendous winds would come down off the hills and the storms would come whipping up on this lake. But these men have grown up with this. This is their life. They, they live on the water. The water is their life. They're not farmers. They're not shepherds. They're fishermen. They're not merchants. They're not traders. They're not traveling caravans men. They are fishermen. And so probably since the time they were little boys, they probably as little boys, they slept at night and went out in the morning and helped their fathers pull in the nets and clean the nets and mend the nets. But eventually they learned how to get on the boat and how to find the fish and when the fish are there, how to mend the nets. Uh, it's very likely that as young boys, one of their simple jobs at first was to carve out some of the wooden floats that were attached to the nets and to chisel the holes in the rocks that they used to anchor the bottoms of the nets. There's a fun job. Here, take this pile of rocks about the size of a donut and make them look like a donut. And that's, those were the weights they had for the bottoms of their nets. In the morning when they came in, sometimes the net would snag on a, a log or a rock or something on the bottom or just wear out from wear and tear. So they would lay the nets out to dry and they would go over them knot by knot to make sure there were no holes because if you're going to catch fish, you, you don't want to lose the fish. And so this has been their life. This, this is their whole life. They, they smell like fish, okay? You've been around fishermen. You've been on a fishing boat, if you have. It's not quite the same as Long John Silver's. <laughs> this, this is who these men are. 
They know fishing. They know it well. They've been doing this their whole life. They know that every shallow spot on the shores of that lake, they know the deep spots where the fish go in the daytime and get down into the cooler, darker water. They know the shallows where the fish come in at night and feed, and they know these places, and they, they've, they've been good enough at it to make a living for several families. In fact, uh, we're told there were two kinds of two major kinds of fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee in Christ's day. One was a, a small sardine type of fish, and the other was uh, basically a tilapia. Uh, some people now call it a St. Peter's fish because it's the one that Peter caught and had the coin in its mouth. Uh, it's kind of a flat-bodied, bigger fish. If you get one over in Israel for dinner, uh, it drapes over the plate with the eyes on one side and the tail on the other. I don't know which they were fishing for primarily, but there were enough sardines in Lake, in Lake Ginneret in the New Testament times that in the village of Magdala, they had an industry of building barrels and salting fish and selling that on the Mediterranean for the ships to have fish uh, when they were uh, out, on the, out on the sea. And so this is quite an industry. This is not just a couple guys you know, taking a Saturday morning with the fishing pole. This is their livelihood. This is what has defined them in their whole life, their whole existence. The, the well-being of their families depends upon this. And along comes Jesus. He's with the crowd. He comes down and he gets into one of the boats and asks him to put out into the water. Well, this was a really good idea because quite often when he was with the crowd of people, they kept crowding in more and more and more and it would make it difficult to teach and be heard. But you know how voices carry over the water. To be able to get out on a boat in the water, people would be able to hear him very well. It's like a natural amphitheater effect. And so Jesus wisely gets in the boat and begins teaching. Notice in verse 3, he sits down and begins to teach. Uh, I, I like that system myself. <laughs> that, that was the custom in those days, is, is people stood in the synagogues for the public reading of the texts of Scripture, and then the teacher would sit down to teach. When he had finished speaking, in verse 4, it's very interesting, when Luke brings out this story for us, he does not tell us one thing about what Jesus taught. Not one. He doesn't say Jesus was teaching about the law and Moses. He was teaching about the prophets. It doesn't say anything about what Jesus was teaching. It just tells us he taught, and when he was done, he said to Peter, Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And I, someone suggested that... Uh, this was Jesus' way of paying Peter for the use of his boat. An interesting way to look at it. I think there's a, obviously a much bigger lesson going on here, but uh, it certainly, Peter just had a disappointing night. What's he going to, you know, he's not going to put any money in the bank today. So Jesus is obviously helping him out in an economical sense. But also, the greater lesson of the net and the catch. In verse 4, he says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. You, you know, that's not 
I'm sorry, carpenter. That's not the way you fish. That, that, that's not how we do it. First of all, we, we don't go out in the daytime. We go out in the night. Because in the night, the fish come from the deep water into the shallow water. And our nets have floats on the top and weights on the bottom, so, so they only go down so far because we're trying to get the schools when they're near the surface. And, and if we go out in the deep water now, the fish are down too deep in the water. Our nets aren't going to catch them. The fish will be under the net. So, you know, I, I, you know, I know you're a really good carpenter, but, you know, really? Um, trying to tell us how to do our job, it, this isn't working out real good. It could have been his response, right? But I love what Simon said, and I think this shows us the relationship of Simon, that he already has a relationship with Christ from his previous meeting with him. In verse 5, he calls Christ master. Master. Peter's the boss. This is his boat. This is his business. He's got employees standing around watching this. He calls Jesus master. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Literally, what Peter says is, upon your word, I will let down the nets. Upon your word, I will let down the nets. Oh, if we could just latch on to the words of Christ. We get all kinds of notions and ideas, and we talk ourselves into all kinds of stupid things, and we believe all kinds of lies. But if we would just look at the words of Scripture. Upon your word, I will put down the nets. Because you said so, I will do it. it you know, Jesus, that just doesn't make sense. You know, I'm sorry, it, it doesn't work that way. This is not what our experience has taught us. Experience shows us that this is not going to work. And so, you know, I know you're the master, but experience contradicts your words. But upon your word, I will do it. Simple obedience. Friends, sometimes God asks us to do things and it just doesn't make any sense. God does things, and it just doesn't make any sense. Experience teaches us this isn't the best way to accomplish this. But upon God's word, we do what he says. And Peter shows us his submission, his willingness to do as he is told. And I don't think Peter had any inclination. I, I don't think he's like, all of a sudden, ooh, this is going to be good. I, I don't think that that's happening here. I think he's saying, okay, Lord, upon your word, maybe he wants us to wash out the nets better. Maybe he wants to see how this works. Whatever it was, in verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Okay, so I, I've been fishing 
and around fishing people for a long time. I grew up in a fishing family. And I know what it is to hear a fish story. Did you hear about the one-armed fisherman? He caught a fish that was this long. goes downhill from here. <laughs> this, this is not a fish story. This is the reality that Christ was able to do for Peter. And for, we, I don't know how much of the crowd is still watching, but it's very possible that a large number of people are still watching what is going on. They let down the nets, and there are so many fish in the nets that the nets begin to break. Now, this was not a common problem in fishing. You don't usually run out of hooks and fishing poles because you've caught so many fish, you've worn everything out. That doesn't usually happen. But they start bringing in the net, and they have to signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they filled both of the boats to the point where they begin to sink. Now, that's a fish story. <laughs> That's an incredible story. That is incredible. They, uh, they are up to the gunnels in fish. They're sitting among the fish. They've got fish on them. They've got fish between their feet. They've got fish all around them. That's incredible. And Peter immediately falls down at Jesus' feet. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is such an immediate and vivid demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ that Simon immediately realizes he is in the presence of God. And he falls down. He falls right on the fish at Jesus' feet. And says, I'm basically saying, I am not worthy to be in your presence. This is humility in the presence of God. It is a voluntary humility, a willing worship of the believing saint to fall at the feet of the Lord. It is something you and I have the opportunity to do every day. Every day, you and I have the opportunity to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him and acknowledge our humility and worthlessness in the presence of Almighty God? Do we take advantage of those opportunities? This is not the forced worship that will come on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but they will confess that they have been wrong in rejecting Christ and that God is right to send them to a Christless eternity. Our opportunity to bow and to worship willingly is now, in this life, in this day. We must take advantage of it in this life. And so Peter falls at the feet of Jesus and acknowledges his unworthiness to be in the presence of Jesus. Because amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. They had seen some good fishing. 
Not every night, not every day. They had seen lean years and good years, but they had seen some good fishing. They'd never seen anything like this. Never. Jesus has their attention. They are at the height of their career. This is the biggest catch they've ever had. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. But that's not exactly how he said it. There are three times in this paragraph where the word catch is used in this account. Verse 4, let down your nets for a catch. And verse 9, the catch of fish. This is a common word that was used for a simple reference to hunting or fishing with a net. Catching with a net. But in verse 10, Jesus adds a prefix to the catching men. And he adds the word basically alive. You will be catching men alive. God is in the business of giving life. He's not catching fish to kill and sell. God has us here to catch people alive. Life. To catch alive and keep alive for eternity. It doesn't come out in the English, unfortunately, but it's there in the original. And then we see their response in verse 11. They brought their boats to land. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I'm not sure they even took time to catch, to clean the fish. There was always somebody in the fishing group that didn't want to help clean the fish at the end of the day. We had our ways of taking care of that. But they left everything. They, they left their business. They left their income. They left their livelihood. They left what was familiar to them. They left what they knew to follow a carpenter who had become a teacher. Oh, but he was so much more than a carpenter. And he was so much more than just a teacher. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of God who was going to make a difference for eternity. The phrase in verse 11 that says they followed him is, is a common word to the first century. It was a word that had already been used for many, many years by the Greek culture and, and it, I mean, originally it just meant to follow someone around, like a slave following his master. But it had been come to be used all across the Greek world in secular Greek literature in the ordinary sense of following someone in an intellectual or moral or religious sense. The philosophers had followers. Various teachers had followers. The healers, the, uh, the, the people who practiced medicine had followers. Luke probably learned medicine by following someone around and learning medicine from them as they practiced medicine. It was very common use in the first century. So 
when, when Christ began to apply that with his disciples, and it's recorded that the disciples began to react in this way, they knew that they were following him to follow what he was saying. They were following him to follow his teaching. They were following him in order to learn the life and the character of the one they were following so that they could change into being like him. One of the purposes of following a teacher was to learn the lessons and become wise like the teacher. This was not just a wandering around after someone, but it was following and committing yourself to the beliefs and the teachings of this teacher. And verse 11 says that they followed him. It is a past tense, but I believe it has the aspect, uh, we, could, we could really translate it, they began to follow him. This was the beginning of their following. This was when they laid down their nets and took off. They left Capernaum. Now they circled back from time to time. And they may have even come back to their nets occasionally. I don't know. But their life now is going to be the life of a follower of Jesus, not the life of a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Their life has changed on this day. And it will never be the same. Amen? Amen. So now we have James as well and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So Christ really devastates this business by taking its principal partners out. I suspect that they had hired help that continued the work and supporting the families and so on. So that's the first four. Now we go down to Luke chapter 5 and verse 27 and we meet Levi, also called Matthew. Levi may have been a family name, Matthew his personal name. Um, Matthew of the tribe of Levi, something like that. We don't know for sure. And it's interesting in Matthew, Matthew himself introduces us to himself in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he does not try to change the fact and cover up the fact that he's a tax collector. That's how he introduces himself in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. Just as Luke introduces him here, verse 27, after he went out, he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. Now, I don't know where this tax booth was, whether it was some, some people in reading through the text think that this tax booth may have been down close to the seashore and that, Christ, uh, that Levi perhaps was collecting a tax on the ferry service uh, when people would go across the lake on, on boats. Well, wouldn't it be just like government to figure out a new way to tax people? Imagine the day that news came to Capernaum. Oh, they got a tax booth down by the ferry now. Got to pay a ferry tax to get across the lake. Sure enough. If there's a way for government to get their hand in the pie, they will. Right? Yeah. Wherever this is, Levi's there, publicly known as a tax collector. And the accounts about Levi's calling are all brief. We're not told what he's thinking, what longer conversation... Did Levi come and hear Jesus preach at some point and already had become an initial follower but was still 
caught up in his occupation? We don't know, but at the end of verse 27, Jesus said, follow me. Just very simply, follow me. And Levi understood what he meant. He didn't just mean, come on, let's follow me down the road for an hour. No, he's saying, follow me with your life. Because Matthew left everything. He left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So two times in this chapter, we are told that they left everything. They left it all. They left it all. I've met some amazing people in the ministry over the years. I've met men that had PhDs in architecture. I was in seminary with one man that had a PhD in piano performance. He was on the way to becoming a concert pianist. I had a man who was an engineer at a very uh, uh, advanced job in an engineering firm in California back in the big boom business, uh, building business on the West Coast. Men who put those things down and followed Christ. There are a great many people over history who have left much to follow Christ. It doesn't matter how much you leave as long as you leave it all. Don't let anything hold you back from coming to Christ. If you're here tonight and you've been listening to this Jesus stuff and this salvation message and you realize you're a sinner but you've never come to Christ, don't let anything in this earth hold you back. There is nothing in this world that is worth not coming to Christ. There's nothing. There's no joy, there's no money, there's no fame, there's no job, there's no house, there's no car. There's no person in this world who's worth not giving up to come to Christ. Give it up. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. I was talking to one young person, and they said, well, you know, I, I want to come to Christ. I'm going to come to Christ, but you know, I want to live my life first, and when I'm older, I'll come to Christ. Oh, that's so deadly. That's so dangerous. I mean, look at what happened today with Kobe Bryant and his daughter. They're gone. Killed in a helicopter crash today, this very day. 13-year-old girl. The person I was talking to was 18. We never know. They left everything. There is nothing in this life that is worth keeping you from Christ. Amen. Let's be like Levi. Let's be like Matthew. Well, they go into a, a section here with Levi's uh, dinner at his house and a discussion that follows between the Pharisees and Christ. Uh, let me just run through a couple things very quickly. Um, <clears throat> This, has, this is kind of an aside, but it, it helps us see the gospel of Luke as a whole. In verse 30, notice how Luke writes this. He says, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, Christ's disciples. He uses the word their scribes referring to the Jewish people. The Pharisees and the Jewish scribes, their scribes. 
He's writing as a Gentile. He's writing to Gentiles to help them understand those Jews. So we see a little bit of a hint there of Luke's audience, just in the choice of uh, the word there as a pronoun for scribes. I just say that in passing. But you notice that the Pharisees are grumbling about Jesus' disciples. And then in verse 33, we actually have three groups of disciples mentioned. There are the disciples of John, who fast often. There are the disciples of the Pharisees, who do the same. And then there are yours, Jesus' disciples. You see, it was common to have disciples. Jesus is not by any means the only person who had disciples in the New Testament era. There were, it was very common to have disciples, just like it is today. There are football disciples, basketball disciples. There are career disciples. There are education disciples. There are recreation disciples and pleasure disciples and car disciples. And you name it, the list goes on forever. People are, everybody's following something. I think of this quite often when I drive down to Maple Hills from here on Sunday morning. Depending on how I go, I go past St. Dennis. I'm just waiting for the day when someone, do you go to church anywhere? Well, I go to St. Dennis on Sunday mornings. Uh huh. It's a golf course, if you don't know. Golf course. And what struck me about that is this. Everyone worships on Sunday morning. Everyone. Some people are worshiping their pillow or their TV or their couch or their day off or their coffee or soccer. And the list goes on and on and on many followers in this world who are you following there's only one there's only one who's worth following in verses 34 through 39 at the end of this let me just make a comment here because this is kind of a we scratch our heads and say what in the world is he talking about Jesus uses the parable of an old cloth and new patches and uh, old wineskin and new wine. And a lot of us in this room grew up in the day when all of us wore clothes with patches. I mean, that was what you did. When you, especially with four boys. When the knees got ripped, you just sewed on a patch on the patch. It was kind of like the highways in some places. But Jesus' point is this. The Pharisees are not willing to give up the, the old and God is not going to keep the old the same way and add new to it. He's not taking the law and, and reshaping it or something. God is going to accomplish the law. He's going to fulfill the law in Christ and do something new. And there's not going to be a mixture of new and old. That's the point of those two lessons, just in passing. But I want us to go just briefly to chapter 6 and verse 12, the third paragraph here, the third section here about the disciples. It was in verse 12 of chapter 6, it was that this time that he went off to a mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke especially records for us several times Christ spending 
significant amounts of time in prayer. Um, I, I, I wonder who told him that, whether it was the Holy Spirit, that's a possibility, or whether it was someone that he interviewed in his interviews that he conducted to collect the information for this gospel in the book of Acts. Remember, he did extensive interviews. He met with many, many people to talk to them about Christ. And I wonder how many times he had someone tell him, oh, he spent all night in prayer. He often spent all night in prayer. It made an impact on Luke to where Luke records it several times. On this next day, verse 13, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also called apostles. So if he called 12 of the disciples, how many disciples did he have? This is a word problem. This is third grade math. If he called 12 of them, how many were there of them? More than 12, right? More than 12. Out of them, he called 12. And look at the same truth in verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people. Luke is making a distinction between the big crowd and the disciples who are there, but it's a large crowd of disciples. More than 12. That's right. More than 12. And so when we talk about the disciples, we often are talking about the 12, the apostles. But keep in mind that Christ had many faithful followers in Israel in the first century. And many of them went on as part of the early church to lay down their lives as martyrs for Christ. There were many who were disciples. But Christ chose these 12. And from this day on, he is going to especially focus upon them for their training and their development. He's going to hold them accountable in a personal relationship. He's going to listen to what they're saying. He's going to tell them what they're thinking. He's going to ask them, what were you guys talking about back there? Oh, no, so no, no. I don't want to tell them. You tell them. No, I'm not, you brought it up. I'm not telling them. Well, we were talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Oh. Mm -hmm. So if you were tagging along behind Jesus yesterday, what were you grumbling about that he would ask you about? What were you talking about that he would hold you accountable for? Luke is going to go on to tell us a number of things about discipleship. I hope that as you read through the book, you take note of those things. We'll be touching on some of them as we go. It's an important theme in the book. In fact, it's an important theme in every gospel, uh, this whole principle of following Christ, what it means, how we do it, how we mess up, what we do when we mess up, and how God, at the end of it, walked away, so to speak, and left this whole thing in the hands of a few men. 
Oh, but he did tell them, don't try to start it without me. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And therein lies the difference. But that's the book of Acts. We're not there yet. We're in Luke. So keep reading. I trust God will enrich us together as we continue studying his word. Will you stand with me and we will close with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, we sometimes think of what it would have been like to walk in those days, walk on those roads with Jesus, sit in the boat, listen to him teach, hear him expound the scriptures, the prophets, the law, hear him rebuking the Pharisees and the hypocrites and the Sadducees. Perhaps, Lord, he would have been rebuking us. He would have been exhorting us to follow him, inviting us to follow him, to understand that that meant to lay down everything and follow him and him alone. Father, thank you that we still have the privilege of doing that, that we have never seen his face bodily, we have never heard his voice physically, yet by faith we can hear him call. By faith we can see him afar, and by faith, we can follow along. So, Father, help us because we keep tripping and falling and stumbling. We are weak. We are beset with sin. But Father, help us to lay aside all these things and follow earnestly after our Savior. Strengthen us in this week for this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.